Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I'm going to dive right in because I, I, I've got uh, sort of this last chance to kind of uh, deal with parables this summer, and uh, I want to kind of um, take a moment to kind of uh, change your perspective perhaps on the title that we've called this series. See, Jesus was a master at teaching and one of the tools that he used quite frequently actually was parables. He actually spoke about 35% of his recorded words are in parables in the Gospels. So while we're calling this series Life Illustrated, Christ's parables were more than just illustrations. Don't, don't fall into that trap of just thinking they were illustrations of his preaching. They were his preaching, right? His, they were his preaching to a great extent. There's lessons in there for us to learn. The purpose of parables in Jesus Christ's teaching was to focus the listener on God and on his kingdom. Some of the parables were to show exactly who the master, who God is, and others were to show who the, the master isn't. Uh, most of them were on the side of who the master is, as many of the ones that we've been looking at. These stories reveal the character of God, what, what he's like, uh, how he works, what he expects from us, his followers. And Jesus taught them with authority. He said, this is how it is, folks. And he taught with great creativity, as we see in these parables. He is the God of the word. He taught from commonplace events, and he used amazing pictures, and especially he taught in parables because what Jesus is after is not just getting people to be informed, not just so they could pass a test on his teaching, but because he wants to transform them. He wants them to be filled with joy and life, and he wants us to remember. I have said these things, he said one time at the end of one of his teachings, so that you may have joy. You might be in you, the joy, my joy might be in you, and that your joy may be full. His aim was to transform, and lest we think that's a painful, dreary task, he talks about it being joy. So often he would teach in non-offensive kind of ways. He would tell parables, not just to try to get people's attention, but certainly they did that, but even more so that they would, he would be able to move past their defenses, the defenses, the walls they try to build up in defense of where they thought they were. They're like these little medications, parables are, like time release capsules uh, where you take it and then after a while it goes off and then goes off a little more and as you keep coming back to the parables, they keep revealing more and more to you. Well, Jesus' teaching is, is just that way. People would remember the stories and then after a while they would kind of go off in their head and go, oh, I, there's more to this, there's, there's a lesson in here, and I see myself in this lesson, and I'm not easily going to forget it. So here's the truth about Jesus' teaching, and that's the point. It is the truth. He was and is right. He is the Son of God. People realized as they heard him teach that there was something different and compelling about his words. Not only were they amazed by the truth and the power by which he shared them, but they saw themselves revealed in his teaching. Jesus knew how life works. People who heard him and, you know, heard him and started to understand him started to really get it, and they would say, here's somebody who knows. I've never heard anybody speak like this, teach like this before. The chance to learn from him and to live like this is the opportunity of a lifetime. 
and I will surely do it. I will surely build my life around what he says. I won't miss this chance. We've perhaps all been there at some point in time saying something like that, but the truth is, it comes down to more than talk. It, come down, it comes down to the walk that matches the talk, to actually be doing what we said we would do and react in a way that Jesus would react when we are faced with things that don't go our way. See, we have this propensity to try and worm our way or charm our way out of commitments like that. Have you ever tried to bluff your way with a lame excuse for being late to your teacher or for your boss or even a friend or a spouse you're sitting, perhaps you're sitting next to them right now, you don't need to nod, you can just think yes in my head. The traffic, oh, the traffic. Oh, the weather, the car wouldn't start. I locked my keys in the car. We're, we're prepared to act, say that we were pretty dumb in order to excuse the fact that we're late, even if it's not the truth, right? My GPS was wrong. The power went off, and so my alarm didn't, right? Anybody in here ever try to excuse your way out of a traffic ticket? I was just keeping up with the traffic so as not to be a hazard officer, right? I think my speedometer is out of whack. I changed my tires. I heard one fellow did this when he got pulled over. He said, I was going too fast to see the speed limit sign. <laughs> and I heard of a guy who was uh, late for classes, ripping down the road, speeding horribly, got pulled over by a policeman who started to write out his ticket, and the policeman was kind of smirking, going, I've been waiting for you all day. To which the fellow replied, I got here as fast as I could, officer. The policeman, I guess, tried not to laugh, finally couldn't hold it, burst out laughing, and let the guy go. <laughs> Someone once said, excuses are like armpits. Everyone has them, but they usually stink. <laughs> we seem to have an excuse for everything, don't we? There are even websites on the internet that will help you generate an excuse. It's true, you type in the type of excuse you need and it generates one for you. I know what you're thinking and no, I didn't check to see if there was excuses like that for missing church. Besides the gold standard, which is of course I slept in and it was too late when I woke up. You can even buy a doctor's excuse from a licensed physician for $14.99 to give to your employer or to your school. But there is one before whom the Bible says we will all stand, every one of us, this one is loving and holy and gracious and just, but he intends for us to understand that we really will give an account for our lives to him. And there will be no good excuse. I, I think we have to kind of just be sober for a moment and think that that's true, that's going to happen. So to try to help us see what we tend to evade or deny because of this tendency that we all have, Jesus tells this parable to us. Now, I want to focus on three threads that run through this story. Each of them has something very important to teach us about God, about the Master. The first one is wonderful news. It's this. God, the Master, is an amazingly big-hearted, open-handed, generous God. He's the Master Giver. In those days, there were, of course, no corporations as we know of them today. Wealth was concentrated in just a few rich households. This, we're going to see, is one of those. 
The master is going on a journey, and so he gathers three of his servants around him, and this extraordinary thing happens. He entrusts his property to them. The implication is that it's essentially all of his property. Jesus talks about vast sums of money here. We need to understand that. It depends on the version of the Bible you look in. Some will call it bags of silver, bags of gold. Uh, in most and uh, older translations, it uses the word talents, but it's hard to translate this thing exactly. But if you think of a talent as basically being essentially 20 years worth of your salary, so it's like getting 20 years of your salary in one lump sum. That's what a t one talent is. Now, in those days, people basically lived from day to day. There was no such thing as even having, you know, money on hand or even a year's salary, let alone 20 years worth of salary just given to you. To have accumulated one year's, just imagine to have accumulated one year's worth of wages or one talent was to be rich in those days. You had an enormous amount of wealth. So the figures Jesus is throwing around here are staggering, and we need to realize that. The master entrusts his wealth to these three servants. Five talents to one, three to another, and one talent respectively to the last, and then he goes away. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is their chance to exercise initiative, develop their gifts, and to rise to positions of greater responsibility if they did well with what he gave them. What are they going to do? This is a defining moment, and everybody listening recognizes it. This is the story of a group of servants who had no shot at any kind of life outside of the extraordinary generosity of the master. They had nothing. He's given them something. It's the chance of a lifetime. The first servant recognizes this is the chance of a lifetime. The man who had received the five talents went at once. Notice went at once. And the key phrase here is went at once. He just goes. He responds at once. He realized that he would be insane to let anything keep him away from this chance of a lifetime. This is a parable about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is coming to us in this parable and saying, the kingdom of God is now accessible to you. Act now. Act now. Ordinary human beings, even people that thought they didn't have a chance in the world, can just walk right in to the kingdom. And people did. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, they just walked right on into the kingdom. They said, this is a chance of a lifetime. People were selling everything they had and leaving behind mothers and fathers for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to live now in the kingdom of God. And this opportunity is ours today. You too can live in the care and protection and power and guidance of God. The master giver has entrusted his property to each of us. The offer is still open. You may invest in the kingdom of God. The word talent that we use referring to ability usually comes straight from this parable. I mean, this is where, this is where talent is first used and where we get it in our English language is from this parable. The word talent originally meant a measurement of money, but the double meaning of the word works wonderfully for us, of course, because the Bible very clearly says that God gives every person talents in the broader sense. So for our purposes today, the definition of a talent is anything that God has given to us, to me, to, or to you, and entrusted to our care. It may be a skill, it could be an ability, it's certainly our resources, like time and so on, our giftedness, even opportunities that God has entrusted into our care. Not a single one of which we've earned. Not a single one. 
As we interpret this parable, in the place of talent, you can simply think about your life, your mind, your talents, your gifts, your body, your money, your will, the church that you are a part of, the gift of scripture, the gift of salvation. These are all gifts, and this is our day, friends. Others have come before you who went off at once, and others will come after you who get this offer and go off at once. But this is your day. The master has been very generous to you, and he wonders, what are you going to do with what he's given you? How are you going to invest it for the kingdom? Speaking of investment, how did this story go? The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Hidden talents. Notice that everybody gets something. One guy got five, another two, somebody got one. This variety matches exactly what real life is, isn't it? We know that even in our own midst, there are different amounts of talents and opportunities and resources. But there are two things to note here. And the first is, there are no no-talent people in this parable. That's intentional, I'm sure. There are no no-talent people in this story. Everybody has at least one talent. Paul writes in Romans 12, we each have been given different gifts according to the grace given us. Again, we each, these kind of inclusive words, it's all of us. God's given them to us. And note the word different. We're all unique. You've got unique talents, abilities, background, resources, education, experiences in life which make you unique. You're not one in a million. Right now, you're one in 7.97 billion as of August this year. That's the population of the world. 7.97 billion. And you're not, that's just not it altogether there. You're, you're unique for anybody who's ever drawn breath, and that's about, about 107 billion people have actually walked the face of the earth until, like, right today. You're one in, two, in 107 billion people. You are absolutely unique. There is not another like you. You are to be prized. You are a unique creation of God. You have that much value to him. You are unique. There is not another one like you. He threw away the, the mold each time. It's interesting that in this story of the varying amounts of gifts, it's the one talent who buries his. His motto is, nothing ventured, nothing lost. Maybe he thinks that his talent is so small that he doesn't count. Although we know to Jesus' listeners, even that one talent is an extraordinary gift. Just think about it for a moment, because we sometimes diminish this. He's just been given 20 years worth of wages. One talent. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, this is hardly even worth sneezing at. You know, like, poor guy got one talent. No, he got something of enormous value. We lose that when we start to compare. This isn't so much about a comparison story as it is about, about how we react and what we do with the gifts we've been given. So this guy has an extraordinary amount, a, a huge gift, 20 years worth of wages. Maybe he wishes that, as he looks around, that I should have got more like some of the others. We don't know. This is the guy who says, since I'm not a superstar, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. Since I can't sing like the folks that were up on stage a moment ago, I'm not going to sing at all. I won't even make an effort. There is this universal tendency to compare ourselves and wish we had what belongs to somebody else. Their physical appearance or their success or their achievement or their marriage or their car or their hair or their body type. Keep going, right? 
a side part of this lesson, of this story is to compare our talents with anyone is just going to make us miserable. There's no point. What's worse, if I spend my life wishing I had the talents that God has given to somebody else, I end up burying the ones that I have and not investing in the things that God gave them to me purposely to do. And we say things like, I've lost the spark in my life, or there's, there's no fizz anymore. The, my spiritual life has gone flat. Everything is dull and routine. Everything is predictable. I don't have the joy I used to have. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because we're playing it safe. We're sitting on the sidelines, getting comfortable with spectating, watching the action instead of being involved. We're, we stopped being stretched. We're, we've buried our talent. We haven't even put it in the bank. We need, you see, something that stretches us. That's how we grow. I've prayed that for every church that I've ever been in. Stretch us, stretch us, and stretch us some more. It's not a happy kind of prayer. It's not even like a look forward to the answer kind of prayer. But this is how we grow. We need to appreciate afresh that the master does not make any mistakes. He's wise beyond measure. He's been on top of this since before each of us was created, putting together each of our own unique contributions for us to use in advancing his kingdom. This brings us to the second thread in the story, and it's the theme of accountability. In this story, it's quite clear that the master is coming back, and like any good manager, he keeps records. Jesus says, after a long time, the master of these servants came back and settled accounts with them. The master giver is also the master accountant. Scripture writers who wrote about this believed that it was good news. They ached for it, actually. They longed for the day when the master would come back and set things right. Don't we find ourselves in that same situation today? Longing for the master who would come back and set things right. Setting, settling accounts with all the powers of this world. We taste this being created in the master's image at times when we long for folks to be held accountable. We mistake this, this awareness to mean that we are the ones who are supposed to be holding them accountable all the time. We are the ones to step in for God and be the final judge. But notice here, the servants aren't doing that. It's reserved for the master. It's reserved for the master. And Jesus says, make no mistake about it, the master is coming back there is going to be an ultimate boardroom experience, if you will, for every single one of us apprentices. Paul wrote, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. There is an inescapable truth conveyed here that the master accountant is coming back and he's going to settle accounts with every single investor. That's you and I, folks. That's with all the presidents and all the prime ministers of the world, all the white-collar and blue-collar and no-collar workers, mothers and fathers, teenagers, you and me, everyone. The master accountant goes through it with the first servant and the second servant. And although the results are different because they gave it their best, they gave it 100%, which incidentally matches their returns. If you noticed, five got five, two got two. They got 100% return on the investment. 
their reward is treated the same. The man who had received the five talents brought another five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents comes before him. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. But then he gets to the third servant. And at this point, the parable grows quite dark. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you and hands the one talent back. The real issue here is the servant is attempting to evade accountability for his life. He is invoking the first and classic excuse of human beings since the beginning of time, since God first put us on the planet. Pass the buck, blame someone else. There's only two people on the earth, Adam and Eve, and already they're in trouble, and already Adam is prepared to pass the buck, right? I see you, you know, how did, how did this happen? You ate from the tree. Notice, if you were here last week, how... Adam diminishes Eve here. Remember I said, you know, when you want to diminish something, make it not seem so bad on your part, you start not naming names, you start just sort of the woman. Well, that's what, that's what Adam says. <laughs> it wasn't me, the woman that you made, that you made, see, like twice. He's already like, it was the woman and it was you. This is the very first, like, these are practically the first words uttered by human beings, and we're already making excuses. It wasn't me, it was the woman and you. Pass the buck. Adam says, don't blame me. It's actually, when you really think about it, your fault, God. The reason for my inactivity is rooted in my understanding of your character. You were unreasonable. You had unrealistic expectations for me. You were the reason that I didn't do anything. I was afraid of you, this servant says. Three kinds of buried fear will prevent you from becoming all that God wants you to be. The first is self-doubt. I could never do that. I'm not qualified. Get somebody else. I'm not good at that. Actually, that's more a fear of failure. Do you remember when you were in school and you knew, you knew the answer to a question but you were afraid to raise your hand? Just on the off chance, just maybe, if I raise my hand and it's the wrong answer, oh, I'm gonna look really stupid. A lot of people carry that same attitude all through life. I won't try anything because what if I stumble? What if I make a mistake? Self-doubt keeps a lot of us paralyzed. And you know what? It's almost as presumptuous to think you can do nothing. I can do nothing as it is to say I can do everything. Someone says I can do everything, we go, yeah, yeah, not, not a chance. But you say I can do nothing? No, maybe you can't. No, it's just as presumptuous because we have here before us the promise that God gives everybody a talent. The second is self-pity. That's a form of fear. I failed in the past. I don't want to ever do that again. I said that about speaking in front of people one day. 
I'm never going to do that again. God's laughing every time I get up here. Maybe some of you are too, now I think about it. Hmm. I made a mistake, right? I blew it. I'm not going to try. It, 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 no, it didn't work. There are two ways to respond to failure as evidenced in the, re the reactions of two of Jesus' followers, two of the disciples, Judas and Peter. They both denied Christ. They both blew it. They both stumbled. They both fell horribly. Judas went out, had a pity party, and consumed by guilt, took his own life. Peter went out, repented, got over it, and started over, and God used him. They both failed, but their reaction to the failure was completely different. It doesn't matter where you've been, but where you're headed right now that counts with God. God used Moses, and he was a murderer. God used Davis, and he was an David, and he was an adulterer. God used Abraham, and he tried to pawn his wife off as his sister. God uses ordinary people. If God only used perfect people, think about it, then absolutely nothing would be ever done, right? Because there's no such thing. Self-doubt, self-pity, and self-consciousness. What will other people think? Oh, they're going to, th oh, no, I don't want, oh, no. Don't, I don't want them thinking that. That keeps a lot of people from developing their talents. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. The moment I start worrying about what other people think, I'm in trouble. I'm doomed, do you really? We like to excuse ourselves by pointing to other people who are more talented. If I had the ability like they did, if I could sing like they could, if I could talk like they do, if I, could, if, I, if I just had the time on my hands like they do, if I had the resources at the fingertips like they do, if only, if only, if only, just because I can't do the spectacular does not excuse me to do nothing. It's just as presumptuous to do nothing. God says, one day I'm going to give an account. It's true. It's going to happen. You might as well face the reality now rather than when you're standing right before him. One day each of us is going to give an account of the investment of our lives, whether we've got one talent to invest or many for the kingdom purposes. Notice in it, it, what in, it's in verse 24, if you're following along your Bibles, what, what fear does. The master comes back and the man who received one talent says, Master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered. He's already passing the buck here. Do you see? Do you see what he's doing? Yeah, that's not really my problem. It's your problem. You're a hard guy. I didn't want to get you upset with me. So it's really your fault. You're the one to blame. See, fear always causes us to make excuses for doing nothing. It always causes us to make excuses. He had, this, this servant had prepared a little speech for himself just to justify his actions. It's your fault, really, master. You were unreasonable. It was an unrealistic demand on me. It's your fault. He passed the buck, and he began to blame. The way you spell blame is be lame. I've always remembered this. Be lame. That's what blame is. Be lame. When you're blaming, you're being lame. He says, it's all your fault. He makes excuses. This is really a lame attempt at avoiding accountability. There's something of a surprise that happens at this point. The surprise is that the master does not say, oh, oh my, 
How simply irresponsible of me. Of course you couldn't invest it. Look at the emotional pain and trauma I've caused you. What was I thinking? The master does not say that, friends, and it's important for us to recognize this because sometimes people misunderstand the notion of God's grace for the idea that God's primary goal is to spare his people their pain. Take a look at how the master responds here. The language doesn't get much stronger anywhere else in the Bible than this. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Now, the context of all of this is that the master isn't agreeing with this. He's just sort of saying, so this is what you think of me, and yet still you did this, right? He's not saying, yeah, I'm like that. He's just kind of going along with the servant here to start with. So the context is not agreement with the servant. Ser servant. We'll see that. He's making a point here in just a second. But see the blindness of the blamer here. He says he has not done more, hasn't done anything really, because he knows the master's nature so well, but actually we're finding out he has no idea. He really doesn't understand the master at all. He has no clue what the master is really like. He doesn't have the first idea of the master's nature. This is the wickedness this completely unjustified slander of his master's character. He's basically throwing this out saying, this is who you are and that's why I couldn't do it. It's slander because it's not true. That's the wickedness that the master refers to. The wickedness, completely unjustified slander of his master's character for he has been nothing but generous but it's almost like the master, even at this point, goes, yeah, I'll, make, I'll just say that point, but I'm going to move on. But what I gave you, how I made you, your part in the grand adventure matters to me. It's important. And even if you thought I was this hard taskmaster, which I'm not, but even if you thought I was, you should have put my money at least on deposit in the bank so that when I returned, I would receive back at least some interest on it. You could have done something. You should have done something. Doing nothing is not going to be an excuse that will work. Jesus points out that the master is not fooled. He knows that this guy is just trying to excuse his way out of a ticket, but that will not happen here. The master is saying, you cannot finesse your way out of responsibility for your life, not even by claiming to have misunderstood me. You may get away with giving excuses to your boss, your parents, your pastor, your spouse, but do not think that you can get away with giving excuses to God. It will not work, and that is graphically illustrated in this parable, for the servant does not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. He hears, take that talent from him and give it to the one who has, ha who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's two really horrible words in that last sentence. Two really horrible words. Words that you never want to hear from the master's voice to you because they're as grim as it gets and it's not weeping and gnashing. It's outside and darkness. Outside and darkness 
because it means life without God where there is no hope, no joy, no love, no laughter, only impenetrable darkness, blackness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Do you see how, how crucial this is? In this story, the master calls everyone to a moment of accounting. This master has high expectations. He has no intention of settling for mediocrity. Each will be held accountable for what the master has given them. This is the teaching of the parable. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we're on a performance track. Grace has already been applied for the servant to get to this stage. He's already in the master's house. But as we've seen before, there is an unbreakable connection between what we believe and what we do. All of these held in perfect tension by the master's love and concern for his servants and for his world. If you think about it, who would want any other kind of master? Here's something else quite extraordinary and quite sobering. The third servant is judged not for doing bad things. Didn't do anything bad. He's judged for doing nothing. Nothing. He didn't steal. He didn't embezzle. He didn't defraud. Jesus says the servant is judged for doing desperately bad. He, does, he was not judged for doing something desperately bad, but for doing nothing. God says when he has given us a talent and we bury it, it's bad news. You cannot please God by playing it safe. The Bible says we have to take risks, for without faith it is impossible to please God. God would rather have you try to serve him and blow it than, and, in, and including in that, make an effort than to make no effort at all. In other words, it's much better that you attempt something great and fail than attempt nothing and succeed. Perhaps you might be hearing God speaking to you even right now, saying, you know that thing that I prompted you to do? You know that place where I prompted you to get involved? Do it. Get involved. Give it a try. Go for it. If you listen to folks interviewing for jobs, and I have on, been on that side of the table a few times, when asked, and interviewers love this question, what's your primary weakness? Any flaws that we should know about? What always gets said? Oh, yeah. I work too hard. I work too hard, I'm just too diligent, I'm too conscientious, I'm just too much of a perfectionist. When was the last time you heard someone say, well, my problem. My problem is I'm just too darn lazy. I can watch TV all day eating cherry danish, that's my problem, that's my problem. See, this servant's problem is wickedness and laziness. We may not use those words too often anymore, but Jesus assures us that human beings are more than capable of them, and you know it too, don't you? I am, and so are you. We have, we, so we had better take these words seriously. I'd like to ask you for a moment here to assess your own life. What has the master giver given to you that he expects you to invest in the kingdom, and are you? What has the master giver given to you that he expects you to invest in the kingdom? And are you? Maybe it's your mind. Human beings can go through life with minds that are filled with jealousy, greed, anger, fear, and lots of other junk. Or your mind can be renewed. It can be invested in the kingdom of God. 
It can be filled with thoughts that are good and pure and right and noble and courageous, but you will have to invest it. It won't happen by default. There's action words even in these kind of phrases like think of these things. It doesn't say just sit there and hum and it will come to you. Think of these things. Maybe you need to, to take, a pick, take a phrase like the Lord is my shepherd and dwell on it over and over and over until you come to believe that it's true. He is indeed my shepherd. He is leading me. Maybe you need to read books of truth and depth that stretch your mind and have conversation about things that matter. Maybe it's your material possessions. You can use money to accumulate stuff or think about this. Your money can build the church of God and spread the gospel around the world. It can feed the poor and bring healing to children. Your money can do that. Make a secret sacrificial gift if God is speaking to you about that. It's an eternal investment. I remember hearing a story once about, I love stories about pastors. Obviously, this is made up. Don't put this down as, as some kind of ology, personology, or any other kind of ology. After a pastor died and went to heaven, he noticed that a New York cab driver has, had been given a higher place than he had, more rewards. I can't understand it, he complained to Peter. I devoted my entire life to serving you and the congregation that you gave me. Well, our policy is to reward results, explained Peter. Now, what happened, pastor, whenever you gave a sermon? Well, couldn't tell a lie at this point. The pastor kind of has to admit that sometimes when he was speaking, sometimes some of the people fell asleep. Exactly, said Peter. And when people rode in this man's taxi, they not only stayed awake, they prayed. Maybe it's your time and your talent. You can just drift if you want to. You can get up, go to work, come home, eat supper, watch TV, retire and die. Or you can say every moment is a gift from God. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice. Even rejoicing is an action, isn't it? God, this moment is yours. This day is yours. You could offer your talents, not compared to anybody else's, as fully honed and finely developed and as passionately, as passionately as you know how. And I can almost hear, even as I was thinking about this and putting it down, I thought, I can almost hear the butts coming back at me, the excuses. How do I know? Because they well up in me too. I really would invest more in the kingdom if I had more to invest. There's one of God's principles of life at work here, folks. What is it that you need more of right now? Do you need more energy? Do you need more time? Do you need more money in your life? Whatever you need more of, start giving it away and see if the Lord doesn't bring it back. You say, I don't have enough energy. Then you need to get involved in some kind of ministry because it's the principle of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow is what you will reap. So the question just goes begging every time that scripture comes up, what are you sowing? What are you giving? What are you giving? You sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. You need more time? Then make time for a quiet time and you'll find you'll have more time elsewhere. It's a principle of life. I dare you to try it. 
Whatever you need more of, start giving away what you've got and watch what happens. Give and see if you don't receive more in return. It's taught all through scriptures. It's one of God's basic principles of life. Give first, without thought of return, and see if you don't get so much more back that you can't even keep it in your storehouse. I was thinking about it this week. An email went out this week. This week, this very week, an email went out to 1,500 of us who in some way, shape, or form call Southland home. 1,500 of us, that wasn't including children. 1,500 of us, a part of Southland. What if each of us accepted the gift of salvation from the master and then identified the talents he gives to each of us with pristine clarity with, and cultivated them with relentless perseverance, deployed them with unstoppable vigor, submitted them with sacrificial humility, humility and celebrated them with raucous joy? You know, the master of this story had only two servants going on all cylinders. Jesus had 12. What if we gave him 1,500? We can do it. Some of you have such lavish talents. I've seen them. You have resources of finances or networks or abilities that could produce huge returns for the master and you're sitting on them. Don't bury them, get in the game. I tell you with no apologies, investing all you have in the kingdom of God is the greatest opportunity you will ever know. How do I know? Because that's what I built my life around. Some of you may feel like from a human perspective, what you have to offer doesn't count much in the grand scheme of things. It will never be really visible or really dramatic. This parable says it still matters. It still matters to get in the game. It still matters to put what God gave you into the pot. We serve the same master who could take five fish and two loaves of bread and feed the multitudes. We serve the same master who can take two pennies given from an impoverished widow and make it the lead gift of an entire campaign. The same master who can turn water into wine and sightless eyes to be able to see and take a corpse and enable it to walk and live. That same master who took 12 bumbling followers, by the way, don't think you can excuse things by saying, whoa, yeah, well, they were disciples. They were fishermen. They were, they were at the bottom of the barrel for the people in that society. They weren't rabbis. He didn't grab 12 rabbis and say, okay, we all know the scriptures. We all know this thing. Let's just go out and do it. No, he took bumbling, bumbling guys bumbling followers and he changed the world through them he is amazing this master of ours what excuse do we have that's the point we don't and this brings us to the final thread of the story we read that this master is also the master rewarder for when he comes back and finds faithful servants in the time of final reckoning he says these wonderful words and you've probably heard them you may have even said them more than once his master replied well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things i will put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness there's a threefold reward there, and, and it harkens back even to the, the prodigal story of last week. There's a threefold reward here. First, there's affirmation. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good job. One day I want to stand before Jesus. How about you? And hear him say this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing else is going to matter at that point but to stand before Jesus that day and have him say, you invested your life for the kingdom. Well done. 
affirmation. When God is pleased with you, it doesn't matter who else is or isn't. Not only affirmation, but promotion. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. The Bible teaches that, that the responsibility here in this next life is determined by our faithfulness in this life. Taught very clearly throughout all the scripture. And then there's the celebration. Aren't you glad our master is a master who loves to celebrate? Come and share your master's happiness. Let's celebrate. The fact is, the happiest people that I know are people who are giving their life away for the kingdom of God. They're giving what they've got. It may not be much, but what they've got, they're investing it for eternity. Likewise, the most miserable people I know are the people who never do anything for anybody or give anything away. Time, money, energy, talent. The word miserable comes from the word miser for a reason. When I hold on to something, I don't have time to help others. I'm too busy trying to hold on to what I got. And I'm miserable because of it. And you know where I am? In the cheap seats, watching. I'm on the sidelines. I'm a spectator. Think about standing before God someday and having God look at your life, look you in the eye and say, well done. What else do you want to live for? He says, come and share your master's happiness. Yeah, I'm in. What else do you want to share for all of eternity but the master's happiness? Words of affirmation, the offer of everlasting joy, wonderful things, but then there's another part of this reward business that might be something of a surprise to you. It's interesting what the master does not say. He does not say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now you can rest easy for all eternity and have a really cool harp and snazzy wings to coast along over the clouds. It's, time is just going to fly by, right? He doesn't say that. You may never have thought about this before, but this is real striking. The master says, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. There's irony here. If you remember, as Jesus' audience is listening to it, they know from the story that the master has given two servants each an enormous amount of wealth. Enormous. More than, more than pretty much anybody in that story could even dream about or imagine. To one, to one, the one who got five, he's given 100 years worth of income. Think about how much you make in a year and put two zeros behind it. The master says, you have been faithful in what? In what? A few things. A few things. Do you get this? Do you see this? It gives me shivers every time I think about it. I love this. What I gave you, all that you enjoy now, whatever you've got, all that you enjoy right now, tiny little few things. It's just a few things. It's peanuts compared to what's coming next. You start thinking about this, friends, because this can be your destiny. Just as real as you're sitting here right now or watching this, this could be your future. Compared to what's coming next, the wealth of Bill Gates, the power of a president, the fame of a Wayne Gretzky or a Celine Dion, a few things. Those are just a few things. In addition to welcoming you and saying well done for what you've done and inviting you into his joy, the final surprise is God is going to say, now, now you get to see the fruit. Now I invite you into your ultimate assignments. Now your real challenge starts. Now you're going to partner together with me in the work that I perfectly made you for in the first place. In a sense, he's saying, don't you get it? You've hardly even started yet. 
This is just the gun going off at the beginning. Your race is only starting. The whole adventure lies yet before you. No excuses. All you need to do is say yes. You don't want to get to the end of your life and see that you missed out on achieving what God had set out for you to do. You just buried your life, buried your gifts, and lived a colorless, boring, stagnant, empty, frustrating, plain vanilla existence. You don't want that. You don't want a life of missed opportunities. You don't want to ponder what mark you might have left in the world if you'd listened to God and done what he told you to do. You want the other kind of existence. Technicolor, richness of spirit, life in all its fullness and fruitfulness, sharing in the master's happiness. God's issued each of us an engraved invitation to the party on the palms of his son's hands. And it's got our name on it. And that invitation is ours to accept and open it up today. I say, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Would you bow your heads for a moment? God's word to us is very simple here. Go for it. He's entrusted to each of us everything that we need to fulfill the purpose for which he created us. God is never going to ask us, what did you do with what you did not have? But I can tell you that he will ask, what did you do with what you did have? What I gave you? It's a question we will have to answer individually and frankly as a church. What did you do with the resources, with the talents, the lives I gave you? And if you've never committed your life to Jesus, would you do it? Would you just do it? Just say yes. Would you open your heart up to him? The best investment you're ever going to make is to give your life to the one who made you in the first place. And the dividends are eternal. Just go for it. Father, we come before you, and perhaps there's those of us who, who are in that place right now, and I just want to say a few words for them in prayer, and they can follow along if they choose. Lord, I want the rest of my life to be the best of my life. Whether I've got five years or 50 years left, Lord, I've got some catching up to do. I've been on the sidelines. I've been watching from the spectating stands. I've wasted so far what you've given me. I'm going to dig it up. I'm digging it up now. It's no longer going to be buried. I want to develop and use the gifts and the talents, the things you've given me, and I'm going to use them for you as you intended. Forgive me. And now, welcome me. Father, for all of us, there's this huge potential. We are sitting amongst a huge potential of all of us put together, all of our talents, all of our abilities, all of our gifts. Lord, help us to develop them for your honor and glory so that we can fulfill the great commission that you've given to us. Help us not to compare them with others, but instead help us to realize that the kind or the number is totally irrelevant. It's whether we're willing to go for it and invest 100% of what you've given us in this magnificent endeavor you call us to, to work for you in building the kingdom. As we part now, Father, I pray that you would help us to realize that the thing that we long for most, the thing that we will center our lives around is to hear from your lips to our ears one day. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. That's our heart and our prayer before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people greet and said, Amen. Amen.